Welcome to the Own Your Choices, Own Your Life podcast. I know you are here wanting to change and rewrite your story. You are desiring to step into the impact that you know you were here to create. I am here to guide you with the proven tools and strategies used by myself and our speakers to support you in taking radical responsibility in your life and learning how to own your choices to change your story. My name is Marsha Van Weinsberg. I am a storytelling business coach, master NLP trainer, speaker, podcaster, and seven times published author. My clients have found freedom and purpose from overcoming their shame stories and learning how to share them with the world. I am so grateful you are here. Let's get started. Welcome back to the show. Today is a very, very special episode as we are speaking with New York Times bestselling author and international speaker, Michael Hinkson. Michael has been in countless TV and radio appearances, featured articles, speaking engagements. Hinkson does so much more than simply tell his own 9-11 story. He continuously explores the broader lessons of life and experiences, inspiring and motivating audiences. Today, we're going to talk to Michael about how to make the world more accessible. Michael was born blind from birth. He spent his life advocating for accessibility for people with disabilities to change the definition of disability, as this does not mean lack of abilities. Michael is an international speaker who advocates for inclusivity and accessibility. Michael also has a very unique story in that he was in the Twin Towers on 9-11 and how with his guide dog, Brazel, he was able to navigate down 78 flights of stairs and safely out of the building. He shares and speaks how to overcome fear, how to see fear differently, as well as sharing his story of Brazel in his book called Thunder Dog and another upcoming book about overcoming fears, which we dove into today. This is a absolutely beautiful episode. And I am so grateful that I get to share Michael with all of the listeners because you will walk away with a shift in perspective, a different insight. And honestly, just grateful that you've spent this hour listening to Michael's story. Welcome to the show today, Michael. It is an honor to have you here. Well, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Now, there are so many parts of your story that I would love to dive into, but I think the first thing that comes up for me is you've gone through a lot of adversity in your life, and we're going to talk about you know, what some of these milestones have been. Um, tell us a little bit about you and who you are. Well, adversity is always a, a, a nebulous term anyway, but, but I am uh, blind. I've been blind my entire life. I am now 73. So I've been around the sun 73 times. <laughs> and, um, y- you know, I think that the probably from for me, if I were to summarize it, the biggest challenge is that people haven't learned that people who are different than they don't necessarily have less capability than they. And uh, maybe for me, that's another way of saying blindness isn't the problem. It's society's attitudes about blindness or other disabilities. And the reality is disability does not mean a lack of ability, no matter what anyone wants to say about it. There have been a lot of people with disabilities and specifically people who have been blind, who have been very successful 
I mean, Milton was blind. Homer was blind. Mm-hmm. Um, people in more modern times have um, who have been blind have been very successful. Jacobus Tembrick was a foremost constitutional law scholar in the 1950s and 60s. Um, and and I also have done a number of things that, that have caused people to um, learn about me. Probably the most significant one is that I worked in the World Trade Center on September 11th and escaped. Um, and, there, and there are reasons why. And, and blindness wasn't in any way a deterrent. So the reality is that we can all choose how we wish to live our lives. And for my part, I think that we all have gifts. Our gifts are different from each other's, but that doesn't mean that they're less. Mm-hmm. And so, as I said, adversity is a very nebulous term, and I think that it's only adversity if we choose to view it that way, and if people won't recognize that maybe their their concept of adversity and how people are held back mm-hmm. is maybe not nearly as substantive as them trying to hold people back rather than recognizing that we all have abilities. Oh, I honestly feel like I could almost stop the show right now because I love how you shared that. That is very powerful. Like disability does not mean lack of ability. And I think you said something there that society has not caught up with how, can you say, can you say that again? Because I think it was so powerful. Well, society hasn't, hasn't caught up or learned to deal with people with disabilities, for example. Mm -hmm. Um, We we tend to think that if a person has a so-called disability, that they're less than we are. And that's not true. And let me do it a different way. Uh, Every person with eyesight has a disability and your disability is your eyesight. Why? Because what happens if you are in a room and the power goes out and you lose all lights? Mm -hmm. Suddenly everybody's running around trying to find smartphones, flashlights, or whatever, because they can't do anything in the dark. Thomas Edison invented the electric light bulb in 1879 for the reason, if you use the Americans with Disabilities Act as the guideline, to provide a reasonable accommodation for light-dependent people who can't function in the dark. And that's simply exactly what it is. And the difference is between blindness and and eyesight is there are a whole lot more of all y'all than there are of us. Mm -hmm. And the result of that is that we spend a lot more time making sure that technology covers up our vis- our disability for light-dependent people, but it doesn't change the fact that it's still there. And so for blind people, light-independent people, we don't care whether the lights are off or not, other than trying to help our sighted friends. And the, the fact is that it's, it's a choice. Uh, there are some blind people who don't buy that, that believe that they're less than everyone else, but it's still a choice nonetheless to believe one way or the other. Mm, thank you for sharing it the way that you did. And I, I, I mean, in line with what we talk about in the show, there's always, we get to choose how we see things. We get to choose how we view things, how we, you know, how we respond to, I would say the, the hands that were dealt, right? We don't right. always get to con- choose the hands that were dealt, but we definitely get to choose how we play them. Well, and yeah, exactly right. How we play them. You know, I don't believe that we could have ever predicted that the Twin Towers of the World Trade Center and the Pentagon would be attacked on September 11th. I'm not convinced yet from reading all the reports that we really could have figured it out because the people who did this horrible thing were good at keeping a secret. 
which is something that most of us don't do very well. But they were very good at keeping things close to their vests, if you will. And so they attacked and leveled the World Trade Center. We had no control over that. We do have control over how we deal with that. Exactly. And, and that's the issue, is that we have control how we personally choose to deal with it. And we can, we, it, it was a tragedy, but we can view it as a horrible thing that screwed up our lives, or we can use it as a mechanism to move forward. And you have absolutely used it as a mechanism to move forward. I think so. I think so. I think so. Um, and I just want to visit a little bit on that day. We're not going to stay there because you've just done so many incredible things that I want to highlight and and really spend time on. Where were you in the towers on that day? <clears throat> I was on the 78th floor of Tower One. That's where we had our offices for Quantum Corporation. So we were on the south side of the building on floor 78, and the aircraft hit on around the 96th floor on the north side. Okay. Okay. I knew, I remember reading this and that it hit above you on the other side. So when that happened, and I've read a few um, and listened to you speak, I mean, I always tells me something about somebody when I go to Google their name and I can see all of the different things you have spoke at, the impact and the reach that you've had. So I've heard part of your story. But how, what was the moment where you were like, okay, we have to leave? And you did have your guide dog with you, right? Right. right. So the, the building was struck and it flexed because tall buildings are really big springs. If you take a spring and you fasten it to a table or hold it um, um, at the bottom on the table and then push the top of it, that's what our building did because that's what they're made to do. The Empire State Building was actually struck in the 1940s by a military aircraft that got lost in a fog bank. Mm. So the tall buildings are actually not stiff because they'll break off in windstorms and so on. They're made to flex. Okay. And that's what happened. So we didn't know what was going on other than the building was flexing. We heard a, a noise, a muffled kind of explosion. It was very muffled because... The airplane hit 18 floors above us and on the other side of the building. But as soon as it stopped, a colleague looked out the window and saw fire and smoke above us. And there was no question about evacuating because something was going on. Yeah. We didn't know what. And of course, people say to me today all the time, even, well, of course, you didn't know you couldn't see it. Excuse me. Oh, last time I last time I checked, Superman and X-ray vision were fictitious. 18 floors and a whole building between us. Of course, I didn't see it. Nobody saw it. What um, a, people are ridiculous. But anyway, sorry, go on. Yeah, well, um, going down the stairs, none of us knew. And that is uh, none of the people around me from all the offices around us knew. We did smell an odor that I figured out was burning jet fuel. And I mentioned that to other people. And they said, yeah, that's what it is. We must have been hit by an airplane. But we had no details other than that. So. We um, we evacuated. We had some guests. We got them to the stairs and started down because since there was fire, it could be in elevator shafts, and it was, of course. Mm-hmm. And then, then we went down. I and a colleague who was in from our corporate office for seminars that we were going to be conducting that day, David Frank, was there. And so David got guests to the stairs at my request, and then he came back, and then we went to the stairs and started down and got out. And I, yes, was with my guide dog, Roselle, 
And again, you need to understand what a guide dog does and what a guide dog doesn't do. A guide dog doesn't lead. The media always say how the guide dog led its blind master down the stairs. Balderdash, the dog doesn't lead. Dogs guide. Their job is to make sure that we walk safe. It's my job to know where to go and how to get there, mm-hmm. not the dogs. Mm-hmm. And and there are a lot of reasons for that. If the dog were taught a way to get somewhere, and then that way weren't available, then what would we do? So it's really my job to know, and I did. So we got to the stairs, and we went down, and, and we got out. And only after both towers had collapsed did I get a chance to talk with my wife. I called her just before we left the towers, but of course, at that time, nobody knew anything. In fact, the media hadn't even gotten the story. So it was after we got out and both towers collapsed that I was able to speak to my wife. And she's the one who then told me how two aircraft had been hijacked and crashed into the towers and one into the Pentagon. And a fourth was missing over Pennsylvania. So we um, we had, you know, we were in shock. We had no clue. What the heck? brought that on yeah um who would have thought that anyone would ever just crash aircraft into the towers we certainly didn't think of that of course not. and i think no one did so um, we i think that whole day i think we were somewhat in mental shock about what was occurring but i finally made it home that night and then the next day i called guide dogs for the blind where i've gotten all of my dogs out here in california and and among other things talked to their public information officer at the time, Joanne Ritter, who put out a story about us and the media got the story and then we got very visible. And that eventually led to me deciding to not sell computers, but sell philosophy and take up a career in speaking and traveling around the country and around the world, not only talking about the day of September 11th, but what we should learn from it, talk about trust and teamwork and leadership, um, making choices, which we're talking about today, the human-animal bond, and a variety of things like that. And of course, that still goes on today. It's it's like it guided you into the work that, obviously, an incredibly horrible day, but you chose to take that and then lead into like speaking, sharing a message, getting it out there, and continuing to make a difference, which I think is amazing. I think it's awesome. I felt that if I could help, as as we got lots of requests for interviews, I felt that if I could help talk with people and teach them to move on and move forward from something like September 11th, if I could start to talk about the fact that you can prepare for emergencies, um, if I could teach people a little bit more about blindness, again, that it, the, the mm-hmm. disability is really in our minds and not in reality then it was worth doing. And it's been fun. And I continue to do it and always look for speaking engagements. It's a lot of fun to do. Well, you're a great speaker. There's no question whatsoever. You can just you can just tell. And that comes from experience and being passionate about what you're speaking about, obviously. So as you're doing that, was there a time where like before you actually started speaking, how did you care for yourself during that time? Was there a lot of um support that you needed like and i'm just thinking just emotional support because of coming through an experience like that um probably more than uh, not or not as much as maybe there should have been but i did talk about it with my wife a lot and you know ironically because literally we had hundreds of press requests that was helpful because it made me talk about it and we chose i chose to accept those interviews because again if it would help 
people move forward than it was worth doing. And talking mm-hmm. about it, even the dumb questions, and there were some very good questions I remember, but talking about it helped, um, I think. So I was able to move forward because I was talking about it. So it was kind of therapy rather than a psychologist. Yeah. I was getting it from the press, but either way, it was a, a, a valuable thing and it helped me work through understanding what happened that day. Yeah. I, I love, thank you for sharing that because I think that's a big piece of it is talking, right. And sharing. And it, it's just now you're in a space where you're not bottling it. You're like getting that out. And as right. you do that, it's easier to start to feel those emotions and maybe like shift that story, which is what you were doing. Right. Exactly. Right. Mm-hmm. And uh, two weeks after September 11th, it was, I think, Oh, let's see. It must have been, um, I think Wednesday, the 26th, the event happened. So I can't remember when I was called, whether it was Monday, the 24th or a couple of days before that. But I got a call from a pastor who said, we're going to be doing a church service for, to well, to honor the people who from New Jersey were lost. Mm -hmm. Uh, Because you could still go to train stations a week and two weeks later and see hundreds of cars at the stations. And as somebody said, nobody will ever be coming to drive away in those cars to go to work. Anyway, um, so I was asked by this pastor who had obviously read about me if I would be willing to come and talk for five or six minutes at the the church service. And I said, sure, I would be happy to come and do that. And again, it was another way of talking about it. Um, And um, I I did make the mistake of asking how many people were probably going to be at the service. And he said, (laughs) 6,000. And I said, okay. And so my first public appearance, if you will, was speaking at a church service of 6,000 people honoring the people who we lost from New Jersey on September 11th. Um, And and I met Lisa Beamer. Her husband, Todd, was the guy on Flight 93 who said, let's roll and then took back the aircraft. So we we got to meet that day, but that's um, that was the first time I spoke, and so it kind of went from there. Well, you might as well go after like the big steps first, right? Sure, why not? Why not? <laughs> well, and did you when you experienced that? Did you have a moment there where it's like, you know what? I can actually do something good with this. I can actually like I can I can feel it. I can do something good with this, and this can help others. Well, I think the press really brought that out more than anything, but certainly by the time I was called by this pastor, I I felt if I could help, I wanted to do it. And my wife agreed. Mm -hmm. Karen um, has been in a wheelchair her whole life. um, And so the two of us, that's great. She reads, I push. Actually, she she passed away in November of last year. So we miss her. But yeah, we move forward though, not move on because I never want to forget her. Of course. And, uh, I figure she's around here somewhere. And if I misbehave, I'm going to hear about it. So I try to stay true. Aww. And, but, but uh, we both agreed it would be a good thing to do. And we went and, um, and did that um, and kind of went from there. But I never was really worried about speaking in front of 6,000 people. I've been in sales most all of my adult life. I've spoken to board members or to, to boards of large companies. I've spoken to IT people and a lot of things in between. And I've been active in a church uh, and in a program called A Walk to Emmaus, which is a Methodist-operated uh, program that's a short, it's a, literally a short course in Christianity. So it's not like 
speaking in front of others was new to me, but now doing it as a career certainly was different. And then that took a little bit of work and adjusting, but it was fun to do. And, And it still is absolutely fun to do. Amazing. What has been outside of speaking to 6,000 people right after, you know, literally after 9-11, what has been one of your favorite memories about speaking or meeting somebody and sharing your story? I'll give you two. Okay. One just happened um, at the beginning of May. You've heard of Head Start, the school program for young children. Yes. So Head Start has a convention every year, and I was invited to come and give the closing keynote address at the National Head Start Association Convention in Phoenix, which I did on May 11th. That had 3,000 people. That was fun. Mm -hmm. And um, they wanted to hear the September 11th story and some of my thoughts on special education for kids with persons with disabilities and so on. And um, we had a standing ovation of 3,000 people, which was great. And then another talk that I did at that same event was called Moving from Diversity to Inclusion, because the problem with diversity, when you talk about diversity and you ask somebody what diversity means, they'll talk about race, gender, um, and so on, and never disabilities. Mm -hmm. So we need to move from from diversity to inclusion, because it is um, a different situation. You can't say you're inclusive if you don't include disabilities. I mean, we're talking about Pride Month all this month, yet um, Global Accessibility Awareness Day took place on May 18th, and there was hardly any notice of it. National Disability Employment Awareness Month is in October, and we'll never see much notice about that. We don't deal with disabilities, even though it's a much larger minority group than uh, people who happen to be part of LGBTQ or any race. Yeah. Um, the only minority, although it's not a minority really, that is larger is women, and that's a larger group than men, but they still get called a minority because of the way women are treated in the workplace and so on. But the reality is we don't deal with disabilities, and it's because mostly people are not educated about us, and they fear that, well, they might become like us, we might, or we might become like them, and we don't want to be disabled and not be able to do anything, which is just not true at all. So that's what we work to try to help people understand. No, it's definitely not true. And I mean, as we, like, what would be some of your thoughts of how to move better from diversity to inclusion? Talk to people. Um, Certainly, if if you see a person with a disability, there's nothing wrong with going up and saying hello. Mostly. We we want to be part of a society and we don't get offended if somebody comes up and says, well, how do you do this? How do you do that? That's okay. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes people can be very obnoxious about it, but by the same token, um, the fact is that that's part of the, the choice that I made to be out there and, and answer questions. So how do I cook dinner? Um, same way everybody else does. I use some different tools sometimes, a, a meat thermometer that talks mm-hmm. um, and, I, and, I, and other things like that. But I cook on the same stove, in the same oven, the same air fryer, I cook the same food and um, and eat it and surviving. So I'm not going to worry about it. <laughs> and, you know, the re- the reality is it's okay if people are curious. I like to be curious. I like to touch things. Yep. Um, and so. 
I don't mind people being curious as long as they're legitimately curious and learn from it, which is the real issue. Um, there have been times that people really haven't learned things that they should. There's a there's a, a kind of a thing that goes on every so often. It's called dining in the dark, where you can go into a restaurant and the yes. lights are off and you're escorted to your table and you sit down and you're going to eat like blind people do. And that's just a lot of bunk because you're not going to eat like a blind person eats. Like a just like a blind person isn't going to be able to do things like a sighted person does. We get trained using the tools and the gifts that we have. Blind people learn to eat, not lose things off their fork and so on. And you go into a restaurant with dining in the dark, you're probably going to have a lot of problems because you don't know the techniques that I use in order mm -hmm. to eat. So don't make assumptions. But that's the the people who created that program use it to say, that's how blind people are. You see, that's what they have to do. That's not true at all. It's not like that. And the result is that we continue to promulgate the misconceptions about blindness and so on. And we need to get away from that. Mm -hmm. It just continually perpetuates the same belief that we're trying to, you're trying to move past, like you're actually trying to change. Right. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, if you really want to see how blind people are viewed, Go get a pair of dark glasses, find a, a white cane somewhere and walk down the street and just watch how people look at you and run out of your way. The, the reality is it's fear mm -hmm. and there's there's no reason for fear. And the answer and, and the issue, by the way, is yes, you could lose your eyesight too. And so what? The question is, are you willing to learn how to use different tools in order to continue to function and live and thrive in the world? Because you can. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What a great um, example. And you think of that, like just to be able to, if you actually really want to see and like feel what it's like to be treated this way, go out and get the glasses and the cane and be in a space of like what you'd be able to see people's reactions. And yeah. it's unfortunate. That's really unfortunate. And I, I, I mean, I just wish there was more change, but as you're saying this, like it's, again, everything requires more talking about it in order for change to happen. We can't just pretend. And you're right for how many people are, I don't know the numbers for people that are experiencing, um, I don't even call it disabilities, but physical thing. I don't want to call it that, but I don't know what the numbers well, are. It's okay. The, yeah. Disability yeah. doesn't mean lack of ability. Right. And so disability is a Disability is a characteristic. There's nothing wrong with the word. We need to recognize that possibly, like we've done with so many other words in our language, we need to change the definition. Yes. Disability isn't a lack of ability. It's a characteristic. And it's a characteristic that manifests itself, as I pointed out earlier, with every single person on the planet, but it manifests differently with different people. Mm. So it's okay to... To, to use the term disability, but in the term in the parlance of what we typically classify as persons with disabilities, according to the Center for Disease Control, 25% of all people in the country have a disability of some sort. That's a huge number. Huge. Yet we that won't talk huge. about it. Wow. Thank you for telling me that. That's a huge number. When you think about it, like we're not talking about it. And yet, as you said, there are like literally two days or one day and a month in the year that are designated. But I, I couldn't tell you when they were, but I do know that June is pride month. Like yeah. that's, and I don't mean that disrespectfully. I'm no. just, I know it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But we don't deal with it at all. 
Mm-hmm. Um, years ago, when Gallup polling organization, and I'm sure they still do it, but it, the, the landscape has changed. But the Gallup polling organization does surveys about what are people's greatest fears. And back in the, I think in the 80s, maybe even into the 90s, one of the top five fears in our country was blindness. Not even disability, but blindness. Because people think that eyesight, if you lose it, is a greater loss than anything else. Now, I'm not sure where blindness or any disability would fit in today's landscape um, from Gallup polling organization, but I'm sure it's not one of the top five fears today. But think about that. It was. Wow. And th- the reality is that blindness certainly is a problem, especially if you've had eyesight and you lose your eyesight. It's frustrating. It's scary. I understand all that, but it isn't the end of the world. Right. And it doesn't even mean you travel down a different road to use the parlance of the book, The Road Less Traveled. You're just traveling in a different lane on the same road. Mm-hmm. I love I love that analogy, just a different lane on the same road. And that's really all it is. Um, we all have gifts, as I said, and what we need to do is to learn to use our gifts. Too many of the so-called professionals in the field of work with the blind really hate the term blind. And they use, uh, and and if you're not totally blind, you are, they describe us as visually impaired. And that's a problem. It's a problem on two fronts. Visually, we're not different just because we're blind. So visually is dumb. And why should we be considered impaired? If if you talk to a person who is deaf and you describe them as hearing impaired, you're liable to be decked on the spot because they recognize that impaired is is a totally inappropriate thing to do. And Mm -hmm. so you hear people referred to as deaf or hard of hearing. And with blind people, it ought to be blind or low vision. But the other part about it, and the reason I brought up the professionals, is that so many of them say, well, as long as you've got some eyesight, you don't need to learn to be like a blind person because you can still use your eyes. And the reality is, if you're losing eyesight, that's the best time to learn the techniques to function as a blind person. That's the time to learn to use a cane because you won't be seeing as well as you used to, and you may lose all of your eyesight. Do you want to learn the techniques now so that if you do lose the rest of your eyesight, you know what to do, or do you then want to be confronted by another psychological crisis and have to go through it all again? But but the professionals want to make this constant distinction between having some eyesight and being totally blind, and that's so unfortunate because they're doing such a disservice to people. Oh, I thank you for sharing everything the way that you have there, because that is just, it's it's necessary and it's required. Like these are the conversations that we need to be having. Um, one of the questions I did have for you is, as you're talking about like accessibility, what is it like building a business accessibility online? Um, it, well, there, there are challenges. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the biggest issues that we face in the world is the lack of access on the internet. Okay. Now, there is a there's an organization, the World Wide Web Consortium, that has created guidelines that define what accessibility is and what you need to do to make a website totally um, accessible and usable. The problem is. To typically do that, you have to code the website. You have to put in special tags to label links, to label menus, 
um, to do um, other things, to describe pictures on the website and so on. And that costs money. So for the many websites created every minute in our country, especially since most of them are done by people without a lot of money, paying to do that is a problem. Mm-hmm. Yet it is, under the Americans with Disabilities Act, something that people need to do. The ADA and the Department of Justice has said that, in reality, websites are a part of the reasonable accommodations mandated and required under Title II of the Americans with Disabilities Act. Well, um, still, it's an expensive but necessary proposition. In Israel... In 2015, three guys, they were childhood friends, they were now 25, they started a company to build websites. And in 2017, Israel passed a law that said websites all have to be accessible. People need to be included. That was a big problem because now they had a lot of websites that they had created for people, and now suddenly they had to make them accessible, which meant they had to go back in and put in all the software, all the alt tags, all the labels, all the coding to make those websites totally usable, describing the pictures that people would put on the sites. And they had to continue to keep them updated as changes were made on the site. Well, these guys said, that's a problem. That's a lot to do. And they actually ended up using artificial intelligence to do most of the work. They created what they call an AI widget that sits in the cloud. and um, when a customer subscribes to their service, and by the way, they made their customers' website successful, and then they opened it as a company to the world called Accessibe, A-C-C-E-S-S-I-B-E, B is capitalized. When um, what they did is they made it available. It's it's inexpensive. It's like 500 US a year for the basic system. The website will be analyzed by this little AI widget sitting up in the cloud somewhere, and then when a person with a, who let's say who is blind goes to the website, they hear a message that says, put your browser in a screen reader mode button. And when you push that button, all of the code that would normally be programmed into the website at the website end gets transmitted down to the browser. So if I push a button, all the code gets transmitted down to my browser. So my browser thinks that the website is accessible because all the codes are there. So so magically almost, I get access to making an internet website accessible. And it's inexpensive unless there are so many things that the widget can't do, like bar graphs and complicated pictures. Those have to be addressed by hand. But accessibility has made a significant dent in the accessibility issue by making it possible for people to have a way to get access information put into what we find on the website. If you're a person with epilepsy, likewise, using Accessibility, you can go into a profile. When you go to a website where there are elements that are blinking and you can tell the system not to let the elements blink, but to use other ways to attract your attention to those places so that even a person with epilepsy won't be thrown into a seizure because of blinking elements. That's amazing. And again, and again, it's 500 bucks a year. It's hard to beat that to make the website pretty much totally accessible. And and the things that the widget can't do can either be done by hand by somebody you bring in or accessibility can do them. But the reality is it is a way that now something close to 200,000 customers around the world 
have made their websites accessible. See, it's always this belief too that there's there's a solution to every problem. It's sometimes it just takes one person to see it differently and go, wait, what what if we tried this? What if we do this? Yeah. 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 There's always a solution. And I I I thank you for sharing that because I have not heard of that before. And I do know that was one of the conversations that came up when we were looking at website was that how do you make it accessible? And so I didn't, I didn't even know that. So I appreciate, thank you for sharing that. Well, and if, if your web people want to talk about accessibility, you're welcome to have them reach out to me and I can, uh, can help them with that. Amazing. Amazing. Thank you so much for that. Um, I have a question. Can we talk a little bit about Thunderdog? Tell us about Thunderdog. Well, so in 2002, didn't think I'd go back that far, did you? In 2002, <laughs> um, Roselle, my guide dog from the World Trade Center, was honored at the uh, with the award for canine excellence at the canine AKC Yukonupa Grand National Championship Dog Show, which was held in Orlando in December. And while down there, I met George Berger, who was at that time the publisher of the AKC Gazette, the American Kennel Club Gazette. And he said, you know, you ought to write a book. I went, okay. <laughs> Hadn't thought really a lot about that, but okay. Um, he said, I can help. Um, and I had taken some notes and I had written things down about what happened on September 11th. And I did it because I wanted to get a consistent story and not have it kind of change over time. Mm -hmm. So I started having notes and George said, you should write a book. And he said, I've got an agent and, and maybe my agent can help you with it. Well, his agent wanted me to do a business book, and I didn't want to do a business book. I wanted to do a book that would interest the public at whole at large. Mm -hmm. But I continued to write notes. And now fast forward to 2010, and in, I think, June of 2010, a woman called me on a Sunday. Her name was Susie Flory, and she said, I'm writing a book called Dog Tales. It's a book that's going to have 17 chapters. Each chapter is going to be about a dog that did something or was famous for some reason. And of course, we want to put Roselle in. Would you tell me your story? And so I spent about 45 minutes telling her the whole story. And when I was done, there was a pause. And then she said, you know, you should really write your own book. <laughs> and I and I told her the story with George and just that it wasn't really going anywhere. She said, I'd like to help and oh. I can talk with my agent. And so uh, a little bit reluctantly, but I decided to to take the plunge. Um, okay, let's let's try it. So we wrote a proposal. We sent it to her agent, who became my agent, Chip McGregor. And and when we told Chip about it first, he said, "I don't want a nine eleven book. There are too many of those." And I said, "Good. I don't want to write a nine eleven book. And this Perfect. is what I want. I want a book about me. I want a book about blindness. I want a book to show people that blind people are normal, like everyone else. And yes, the World Trade Center story." is an integral part of the book, but it's not about September 11th. Mm -hmm. It's about blindness. It's about guide dogs. It's about me. And it's about making choices and moving on. And he said, well, that sounds pretty interesting. Well, we wrote the proposal and we sent it up. And the next thing he calls and bouncing off the walls, he says, I can sell this in no time. And within a week we had a contract. Wow. That's so, like, that's something that's fast. So we, so we wrote it and mm -hmm. uh, Thomas Nelson publishing decided that they would publish it. Um, so we wrote it. They um, they had one major edit change to it. And that was that the way the book is laid out, every chapter begins with something from September 11th. Then we go back to things that happened in my life. 
And then we come back at the end of the chapter to picking up the story of September 11th. And then we go to the next chapter and do the same thing again. And Chad, our editor said, the problem is your transitions are really lousy. I get lost every time you jump from one thing to another. So you got to fix the transitions. He said, my job isn't to rewrite your book and make it something that it isn't. And he said, that isn't rewriting your book. You've got to rewrite or write better transitions. So I said, I'll do that. Mm-hmm. And I took a weekend and I created transitions for every chapter. And Susie and I looked at it. We liked it. We sent it to Chad at Thomas Nelson. He said, this is great. I love it. Um, you fixed the problem. And they moved forward with it. And then in, I think, June, or maybe it was in early July, um, we got an article from Kirkus, which is the publishing, the magazine for book publishers and libraries and so on. And they did a review of Thunderdog. And by the way, the title Thunderdog came from the publisher. I wanted to call it Forward because that's what you first command you give to guide dogs. Mm-hmm. And they said, well, we want to have a, a more dog thing, and we just think it should be Thunderdog. And so I acquiesced, and it's worked out very well. But um, Kirkus did their review, and one of the things they said, he's bragging now a little bit, sports fans. They said, one of the best parts of this book is the transitions that took place in every chapter because we don't get lost going through the book. It's an amazing book. So <laughs> I thought I must have done something right. Anyway, it got published on August 2nd. Amazon had already placed a pretty significant order with Thomas Nelson for it. We were aware of that. And then on the 11th of August, we were at home and I got a call from the folks at Thomas Nelson and they said, "Um, we've got to tell you something. So can you sit down? They were trying to sound all sad and all that. And I said, well, Karen's sitting. Does that count? And they said, no, you got to sit too. And um, so finally, I, I sat down and I actually was sitting, but I, but I sat down and I said, Okay, we're sitting down and the next thing out of their mouth, and it's first week out. Thunderdog is on the number on the New York Times bestseller list. Amazing. And one week it was number one, but um it it's still there, available anywhere books are sold. And one of the logics behind calling a Thunderdog is one of the places you'll find it at Barnes and Noble is among other places in the animal section. And that's fine. Mm-hmm. But um it's it's a book that it was written. It's not hard to read. It's simple. It's not grossly long, mm-hmm. but I think it gives people a completely different perspective than they're used to about blindness and blind people. Amazing. Um, and it does tell my life and, and talks about Karen a little bit and talks about Roselle. And I hope it gives people lessons that they can take away. And of course, then I'm always available to, to come and speak. And we, we have a lot of fun doing that too. We wrote a children's book afterward called Running with Roselle with Jeanette Hanscom, Aww. who is a children's book writer. And, and the idea behind it was to write a book that told about my growing up as a, a blind child and then Roselle growing up and how we met. So there's a chapter on September 11th, but it's, again, mainly about us. But one of the things that that happened with me is that for the last 21 and a half years, I've been traveling and talking about escaping and why I escaped and why I wasn't afraid, because I learned a lot about what to do in an emergency. As the leader of the office at the World Trade Center and the person who would be in charge if anything ever happened, I needed to know what to do. I couldn't rely on sighted people leading me around and not knowing because they couldn't see signs if there was smoke or they were just reading signs. I needed to know what to do. So I consulted with 
all of the emergency preparedness people, the Port Authority people, the um, Port Authority police and so on, and, and really learned everything that I could about the complex, where everything was, because also as the leader of that office, if people wanted to go somewhere, or if we were going to go to lunch, I needed to lead them to lunch. I didn't want to be led around. How would it look if I'm being led by someone because I didn't know how to get around? And then two hours later, we're negotiating contracts, right? Mm -hmm. So I needed to know what to do. But what I haven't done is really worked to teach other people how they can learn to, as I would say it, not be blinded by fear and learn to control fear and use it as a powerful tool. And so one of the things that we're now doing, I'm writing... um, And again, I have a colleague helping a woman named Carrie Wyatt Kent. Carrie and I are writing a book, and our working title is A Guide Dog's Guide to Being Brave, but it's a book to teach people how to learn to control fear. And we base it around um, my experiences with my eight guide dogs. And every dog has its own personality. Some did really well with fear. One dog never could deal with fear. And actually only was able to work as a guide dog 18 months. And then she just became too afraid to guide and had to retire. And so we, we wrote the book around that, but giving people lessons on how to learn to control fear and use it as a tool rather than letting it blind you and paralyze you and keep you from being able to move forward in situations. And so it's now at the publisher and we'll, we'll see if they need us to do more work on it before it goes out and we'll go from there. That is amazing. I I love that. Thank you so much for sharing that. Um, My niece is, uh, she actually went through school for as a service dog training, Uh California, and we're in Canada. And so I, I was so fascinated listening to all of the steps that they would take these dogs through Mm -hmm. and how, you know, you think it, for example, I'm just throwing a number. uh, There's a litter of like eight dogs and they're service dogs. But not all eight make it because no. they, they, and I think, I don't think people realize that is, is what they go through in order to um, be able to be trained for this. And was I she training, saying, was she training to learn to be a trainer or was she getting a dog? No, she was training to be a trainer. She was a trainer. Yep. Okay. Fascinating. Like absolutely well, fascinating. Well, in fact, um, typically Labrador retrievers have been uh, in recent years, the most common guide dogs. And that's because their personalities have generally been the best. They have a double coat. Um, they just tend to be less flappable, mm-hmm. but even so only 50% become guide dogs and the rest become career change. They're not failures because not every dog mm-hmm. is cut out to be a guide dog. Just like not every person is cut out to be a speaker or a podcaster. So true. And, Oh, I've met some of those. And oh, hi. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and and it's and it's interesting because again what the schools had to learn was to get away from calling them rejections or failures and, right. and so the terminology of career changed came up and guide dogs for the blind has donated um dogs to canine companions for independence because they can become guy uh, service dogs to do other things other than guiding mm-hmm. guiding is probably overall the most stressful thing because as long as that harness is on the dog is on right and it is um, it is a, a very stressful dog job rather, and the dogs want to please. Mm-hmm. Um, they they respect us as as Caesar Milano would say the pack leader, mm-hmm. uh, and and we have to take on that responsibility and recognize it, and that also means that we need to be supportive of the dog. So as I tell people, 
I'm the the cheerleader, the team leader, the boss, the the confessee, mm-hmm. um, the person that the dog gets to tell its problems to. And I need to learn all of that. And I need to learn to be just as supportive of the dog as I want the dog to be supportive of me. And so we learn to respect each other's jobs. As I said, the dog's job is to make sure that we walk safely. It's my job to know where to go and how to get there. And when we work together, it's it's a it's a, a great, wonderful experience. It's second to none in terms of building a team. So I also love to say that I've learned more by building teams with eight guide dogs that I've learned from all the experts like Ken Blanchard, the one minute manager and Tony Robbins and all those people, because it's really putting it into practice in every sense of the word. Oh, I absolutely, I just love this. This is just, I'm such a dog lover anyways, but I, I just learned so much watching her and learning. And I remember there was one point, you know, they go through these stages and they're passing. Yeah. And then all of a sudden there was one test where they had to take them to, I think it was a, either a baseball or a football game and there was fireworks. And she's like, yep, sometimes that is a test because some dogs just can't yep. handle yep. the sensation of it. And so it was just, but those dogs would go on sometimes working in nursing homes, working in other areas. So I love that concept of they're not paying. And, some, and sometimes they get over that fear. Yep. Now, my current guide dog, Alamo, is a black lab, mm-hmm. and um, he notices when fireworks go off, wakes him up, mm-hmm. but but it doesn't bother him. Roselle was some bothered by fireworks because she grew to be afraid of thunderstorms um, in New Jersey, and it was hard to to calm her down. But if the harness were on, although she still might be nervous, she would work through it. Mm-hmm. Um, but Alamo didn't have a problem with uh, and doesn't have a problem with fireworks at all. And we, of course, hope that continues. It's yeah, just noise. Exactly. Exactly. Wow. As I'm just, there's so much that you're sharing that I am very appreciative of. And I know that this is going to land with so many people. I do want to come back to one thing about this book that you have at the, in a proposal stage right now. Mm-hmm. What well, are some of the... It's it's written until okay, they okay. change it. <laughs> okay, perfect, perfect. So, what are some of the tips that you can share with people today? Because <clears throat> I actually just I got a message on a video this morning, and I talked. Actually, my message this morning was all about you know building a different relationship with fear. When you can build a different relationship with it and see that it is there, but it's not always there to stop you, and. I can't even, I'm actually, it was a little bit overwhelmed by the comments of, well, what does that mean? How do you build a relationship with fear? How do you see it yeah. differently? It stops me every single day. And it's, I just think fear is something that is paralyzing so many people from even taking a step forward. Yeah. So like anything, start simple, right? Um, mm-hmm. Things happen to you every day that cause you to maybe get a little bit afraid or react. But do you ever stop at the end of the day? when you're going to sleep or just before you go to sleep and say, let's look at the day. Why did I react this way to that? How could I have reacted differently? And literally do five minutes of self-analysis. Yeah. And what what went really well? And why did that go well? And why did that not bother me? And start to look in your own mind at what is bothering you and what is causing you to maybe be afraid. And and look to see if that's really the cause. So you had a conversation with someone who um, came to your house and wanted to buy it. 
and um, you're, you don't want to deal with realtors. You're afraid of them. Why are you afraid of a salesperson? What is it that you're really afraid of? Well, maybe you're not really afraid of them, but you're afraid of the fact that um, you've had close calls with money in the past, or you're afraid that someday in the future, you might have to sell your home because you can't afford to stay there and so on. But if you don't break those fears down and analyze them and see where they really come from, you'll never be able to deal with them. Conversely, if you do break them down and you do understand and realize, oh, I guess I'm really afraid that I might have a time when I can't afford to be here or I'm going to grow older and I won't be able to keep my job anymore. Mm -hmm. And so you start building up a fear from that rather than recognizing, well, okay, maybe what that will mean is I'll go do something different, but I don't really need to be afraid of that because what if isn't going to get me anywhere? No. And and you have to come to those realizations on your own. Um, one of the things that um, I talk about in the book, a story that I tell, is that when I was program director of our radio station, when I was at college, we had a, a program that we set up. I had asked every DJ to tape their shows so that they could listen to them later. And of course, people refused to do that. And so what I did was I worked with the engineer at the station and we set up a, a recorder and we recorded on cassettes. That goes way back before CDs, folks. <laughs> um, and, and we would give people a cassette of all the times that they talked during their show. And we said, you are required to listen to this. And the reason was we wanted them to hear what other people are hearing from them. Mm. And when people did that, by the end of the year, it was amazing how much better people were on the air. And so when I speak, for example, I record my speeches because I want to go back and listen to them. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, the story is often the same, but I still want to listen to what I say and how I say it so that. I can try to be better the next time. And I believe in self-analysis. I believe in looking at what we do and facing the things that we don't want to face, but we could face that in our own minds and look at it and maybe sneak up on it, but still do it and get to the point where we recognize this is what I'm concerned about. This is what I'm not concerned about. And maybe we need to seek out a life coach or even a therapist to help with some of that. But the bottom line is that the best way to deal with fear is to recognize where it comes from. Mm -hmm. So on September 11th, I had no expectation that we were going to have an emergency, but I had learned all of the things that I could about what to do in an emergency. I learned where everything was. And what I didn't realize was I was creating a mindset that said, if there's a problem today, you know what to do. And so what happened when the building was struck, and I mentioned earlier that it tipped and then it came vertical again, my colleague David, after the building got straight up and down again, turned and looked out the window and started shouting, oh my God, Mike, there's fire and smoke above us. We got to get out of here right now. We can't stay here. And I said, slow down, David. Wow. Now, at the same time, my guide dog, Roselle, had come out from under my desk where she'd been sleeping. Mm -hmm. um, I took her leash. I told her to heal, which meant to come around on my left side and sit, which she did. And David kept shouting, we got to get out of here. There's fire and smoke. And I kept saying, slow down, David. And finally, he used what I call the big line. You don't understand. You can't see it. Well, I did understand. He told me there's fire and smoke above us. There are millions of pieces of burning paper falling outside our windows. 
The problem wasn't what I wasn't seeing. The problem was what David wasn't seeing. I had a dog sitting next to me. I knew what she was like when she was afraid. And she's sitting there yawning and wagging her tail and going, who woke me up? She wasn't giving any indication that she was sensing anything that would cause her to be afraid. And I knew that if she were sensing anything at all, then I would be able to tell that. So clearly whatever was going on wasn't so close to us that we couldn't try to evacuate in an orderly way. And I finally got David to focus and I said, get our guests to the stairs, get them down, then come back. We'll sweep the offices and we'll go. And that's exactly what happened. But it's the reality is that I had created a mindset that said, you know what to do. I've had a lot of experience with dogs. I was observing my dog's reaction. And I knew that whatever was occurring, we could only deal with what we could deal with. So we got our guests to the stairs. Yes, they all got out. And we made it out. And um, and so we did what we could do. And we helped a lot of other people going down the stairs as well. Because I constantly praised Roselle saying, good dog, good girl, keep going. What a good dog. Because I wanted her constantly to know that I was okay. Mm-hmm. Even though I was afraid, <clears throat> I couldn't let her know that. And also, I couldn't let any fear that I had be so strong that it affected how I was. So I used that fear to focus. And yes, I was listening because if I started hearing the building creaking and groaning, I was going to be real worried about that. Yeah. So I, I was listening. But by the same token, I had control of my fear and my senses. And that's what it's all about. And that comes from knowledge. And you can learn, anyone can learn to have the knowledge of what they do and why they do what they do and how they can move forward from doing what they do. That's uh, Thank you for sharing everything that you did. It's just so much value in there for people and this like being prepared mindset that you know, like you know what your next step is. I think that especially with the noise of the building, but also I'm sure the panic state and energy of others, it was even more important that you stayed, you know, as relatively calm and focused as you could, because you could have looked at it when I'm like 78 stairs up. Oh my gosh, how is this going to happen? Instead, it's like one step at a time. It's like one step at a time. It's and, And I feel like that is such an analogy for how we navigate through challenging times. Well, as I do tell people, at least we got to go down and not up. So we didn't have to work quite as hard. But but the fact is that we can learn to control fear. Fear doesn't need to be our enemy. Mm-hmm. And yes, there, there there is there's always the possibility that something can happen that is incredibly overwhelming. The building could have collapsed on us. Yeah. But you know what? There's nothing we could have done about that. No, And there's no sense worrying about it. After uh, September 11th, I reached out to the folks at Guide Dogs for the Blind and asked what they thought about um, any effect that all this might have on Roselle. And they asked, well, did anything threaten her directly? Was she hit or injured in any way? And I said, no. And they said, well, then there's nothing to worry about because dogs don't do what if. You know, when it was over, it was over for her. And clearly it was because as soon as we got home, I took her harness off and she ran off to find her favorite tug bone and started playing tug of war with my retired guide dog, Linny. It was over for her. Um, and, and they don't do what if. 
And our problem is we do way too much what if. And there's nothing wrong with strategizing and doing what if, but don't do it to drive yourself into fear or to panic. There's no need to do that. I think that might be one of the most profound things that I have heard. And just, I mean, I'm such a dog lover. I huge, I, I love dogs, but I never thought about that. They don't do what ifs. As humans, we do <laughs> what if 10,000 times over. And we're trying to prep for things that we think might happen that haven't happened yet. And I often say that, you know, we've walked through some really difficult years and I know I spent time preparing for the what ifs, but when those challenges came, I didn't have time to open up a book and figure out what I was going to do next or listen to a story. I had to make decisions in the moment. And mm-hmm. that was a, you You can only prepare for what you're fearing like so much, but playing all these scenarios out in the future now is, it's just not productive. It's not. It is, and, it, and it will drive you crazy mm-hmm. <clears throat> and it will create fear yeah, where fear. there is no need to have fear rather than, you know, just doing the, what if take the next step. Okay. Mm-hmm. Great idea. What if this happens? What will I do about it? Mm-hmm. And you decide, well, there's nothing I can do about it. Then you don't worry about it. And you make the conscious decision not to worry about it because there's nothing you can do. Or, well, okay, if if I get locked out of my house, what am I going to do? Be afraid or what? And you can decide how you want to deal with it if you want to have a key somewhere. Personally, I got locked out of my house once when I was like 10 or 11 years old. It was a Saturday morning and I don't even know how the door got locked um, or maybe um, it was locked. But but when it's locked on the inside, it yeah. wasn't a deadbolt. The, the knob still turned and I went outside anyway. So I was locked outside for about 15 minutes. But after that, when I started carrying a house key, I never take it out of my pocket. And leave it on a drawer, on a dresser or something. I always keep it in my pocket because I always know where it is. And I never change that. So I won't get locked out unless I'm not wearing my pants. And that would be a little embarrassing. But <laughs> that's another problem. <laughs> that's a different issue entirely. But but the bottom line is that I, I do not leave my keys somewhere mm-hmm. because they can't be forgotten. Mm-hmm. Wow. This is just honestly, thank you for sharing everything that you've shared there because there's again, so much value, lots of perspective shifts that I know are going to support people as they listen to this. So I have loved this conversation. Where's the best place for people to connect, follow, learn more about you? They can go to michaelhingson.com, M-I-C-H-A-E-L-H-I-N-G-S-O-N.com. And if they if they are interested in exploring me coming to speak, they can email me at speaker at michaelhingson.com. But you can go to michaelhingson.com and even learn about our podcast called Unstoppable Mindset, where inclusion, diversity, and the unexpected meet, which is a lot of fun. <clears throat> and so it keeps us out of trouble doing that. But the um the 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 best way is to go there. We're on LinkedIn and and um, our podcasts are on YouTube and anywhere that you can find podcasts. And um, and I'm on LinkedIn and Facebook. And we're um, those are the the two major places that I tend to to post things. I don't read a lot of messages because it just takes so long using a screen reader. So oh, I imagine um, if people want to uh, 
to reach out. Best thing is to email speaker at michaelhingson.com. But I'd love to hear from people, love to hear your thoughts. And especially if you want a speaker, I'd love to talk with you about that. I customize every talk that I give. I don't just, you know, have a canned speech. People want the September 11th story, but around that, I do what whatever it is that people want. And oftentimes when I'm giving a speech, I'm composing it right up until the time I start. Because I, I learn once I arrive somewhere and talk to people and learn about what they're experiencing and they're talking about or they're dealing with at the event that they're that we're all at. And sometimes that adds great value to what I do as well. So mm. it's a lot of fun. And uh, and we travel the world and, uh, and we'll continue to do that. I love that. Thank you for all that you do. And that is a sign of a good speaker, somebody who can um, pivot, add things into their talk before it even starts. Because sometimes you're getting a feel for the audience or people. And it's like, ooh, there's pieces that I didn't think to add that I do want to. I had a situation where a speaker's bureau called me and said, I have a speech I want you to go do. They want to hire you and it's the National Property Managers Association. I said, well, okay, what are they? And oh, they manage property like rental properties and all that sort of stuff. And um, they want you to come to Myrtle Beach. They're having a convention and do a speech. Mm -hmm. So I got there, but I got there really late the night before I was supposed to speak at breakfast. And I got in about 1230, plane was late and all that, but got there. Got up in the morning and sat down at breakfast with, with people from the event. And they were talking about stuff that <clears throat> seemed to have nothing to do with what the Speakers Bureau said. And so finally, I got brave and I said, tell me, what is the National Property Managers Association? Oh, it's the organization that manages any kind of physical property owned by the federal government. Oh. Ah. 15 minutes I had to change the whole speech, but fortunately, having negotiated GSA contracts and and negotiated and been involved in other contracts that if I told you more, you would disappear from the earth. Um, Please don't. It, it, was, <laughs> it was easy enough to to do that. But, you're, you know, I, I think that that's what a good speaker should do. I don't want to give a boring speech where I just read. So the speech worked out well and uh, had a lot of fun with it and did others for them and all that. And and it's a lot of fun. Oh, I love that. Thank you for sharing all of that. I have loved this connection and conversation, and I'm very grateful that our paths have crossed. Um, again, you shared so much value for everyone who tunes into this episode. And I have one more question for you, and it is what lesson in life are you most grateful for? I think if there's something that I'm most grateful for, it would be that I get to live life. And that I think that life is an adventure. Mm -hmm. We should embrace it. We should move forward with it. We should explore it and always have fun. And my parents taught me that. When I was born, my parents were told to send me to a home because no blind child could grow up to amount to anything. And they said that was wrong. And they took me home and they raised me with, with that attitude that life is to be explored and um, that I could do whatever I chose to do. And I grew up believing blindness wasn't the problem. It was our attitudes about it. And that the reality is that all of us live the same life. We're all under the same God. And we need to learn to work together, but allow everyone to grow in the ways that they can. Mm, that is beautiful. Thank you for sharing. And I actually was going to ask you about your parents. So thank you for um, for sharing that because 
during those times, that would have been what some experts would have said is that, which is, it just makes me sick to even say that, but that's what people would have said is no, no, they can't have this. So you need to send them somewhere. And happens all too often. It does. It does. And I mean, I just think that, especially at that time for your parents to say, no, no, he's coming home and this is not how we're doing it. So I think that says a lot about them and the um, role that they played early on in your life. I'm sure they had fears, but they were brave and they didn't let them show. And they let me ride a bike around our neighborhood. They let me be out like my brother and doing other things. And um, I went to public school and they supported all of that. I love it. Wow. I love it. Thank you so much for sharing. And thank you for being here today. It was an absolute honor to have a conversation with you. Well, thank you. I think when when this comes out, if you don't mind, we'll put it up on Unstoppable Mindset as well. Absolutely not. I I say like the more content goes out and share it, the better. So I'd be honored. Well, we may have to just have you on Unstoppable Mindset. And have I would love that. We'll do it. <laughs> I would love that. We will make that happen. <laughs> Thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of Own Your Choices, Own Your Life. If you love this episode, I invite you to tag me on social media with your takeaways or share it with a friend. Please, if you feel called, take 30 seconds to leave a five-star review and I will be forever grateful. Until next time, remember when you own your choices, you truly own your life.